First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. This is the word of God for us to hear this morning. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Will you pray with me? Lord, your word is so good. This morning, speak to us, teach us, change us, grow us, encourage us. Do your will in us. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. And you may be seated. There's a lot of talk in our society today about the issue of identity. Have you noticed that? People identify as different things, different categories, different groups. Some people primarily will identify themselves by the nation that they're from. Some identify with their political positions. Others are identifying themselves by psychological labels or struggles. Some identify specifically with skin color. Some with sexuality issues. Some identify themselves by the intersection of all of the perceived disadvantages they have in society. And these labels for identity have unfortunately found their way into the modern church's vocabulary. You will hear Christians putting, putting a word before the word Christian so that they identify differently. Have you heard this? Someone says, I am a something Christian. And often, in that blank that goes there, you'll hear people using the very same categories that have become so popular in the world we live in. But we should be asking ourselves if our labels, if our categories, if our identities that we take upon ourselves match what we see spoken of in the Word of God. Does the Bible give us label, labels for identity? Yes, it does. The Lord saw fit millennia before people ever thought to identify or categorize themselves by their skin color or their political party. The Lord saw fit to tell us what our identity is supposed to be. 
And it should not surprise you that the identity that the Word of God gives you and me is not anything like the way modern folks attempt to identify themselves. And let me say to us, it is dangerous for you or for me to wear an identity that is not the identity that the Lord spells out for us. So if you will, get ready to take down five quick points. And as we work through these points, we're going to learn some significant things about how you and I are to identify as Christians. And I'll give you a hint even before we start. Our identity is as the people of God, not as political, ethnic, or any other popular identity of our day. So let's get started. Point number one. You ready? Yes? Two of you are. Thank you. Christians identify as a holy priesthood. Christians identify as a holy priesthood. Listen to the word of God in verses four and five. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, just before these verses, last week, right, for us, Peter talks about the fact that the people of God have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And here he's going to go further with us, and we're going to get a big mix of metaphors to see who we are supposed to be, who we are in the sight of God, if we are indeed truly the children of God. Now last week the call was to love one another by hungering for God, by putting off sin, by treasuring the gospel, by treasuring the word of God. But now the call is, Christian, you need to become what God says you are. You need to identify as what God says you are. So what is it? Well, first in verse 4, he's going to talk about Jesus. And we see that Christians have come to Jesus and he calls Jesus a living stone. Now, I'm going to quote, I'll give you references right now. You can write the references down, but we're not going to look all these verses up this morning. But in Matthew 21, 42 through 44, if you want to look that up later, there Jesus refers to himself as a stone. He calls himself the stone, the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Uh, we read that as well in Psalm 118, 22 and 23 this morning. But in that picture, Jesus is telling those who follow him no matter what the world and the religious do, even if the world and the religious of his day reject him, throw him out, Jesus is going to be the foundation stone of the people of God. Now that's not a new thought to the people who got this letter from Peter. But that would have been a very comforting thought to the people who got this letter from Peter. Because the people who got this letter are Gentiles scattered around Asia Minor. And they would have felt like rejected stones too. And so for them to remember that Jesus was rejected by men, but beloved by God, that helps them to see that they too can be hated by society, but treasured by the Savior. And all of Christian identity, 
all of it builds on top of the identity of the Savior. Our identity is founded on the person of Jesus and the fact that we have come to him to find new life. So then we go on and we see that not only are the people of God rejected like Jesus and beloved like Jesus, we, the people of God, are in process of being built together for a purpose. Peter said in verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, how many images can you see in that verse? Several, right? First, like Jesus is a living stone, Christians, we are like living stones. Peter here is very intentionally tying you and me to Jesus so that we know that we, like Jesus, are going to be rejected by the world, treasured by our God. Are you okay with that, by the way? Are you okay being rejected by this world if God the Father treasures you? I hope you can take that. Your identity springs from the identity of Jesus. He's a living stone. You get to be a living stone. But then Peter brings a new picture of how we as living stones function. We are being built together by God into a house, into a holy temple. We, have you ever thought about the church like this? We are a house, a temple made of living stones. That is God's purpose for God's people. You know one thing that means for sure? The stones, and you're the stones, are never ever designed by God to stand alone. Living stones are designed by God to be built together, mortared together as a unit, unbreakable, inseparable. And that picture shows us, friends, that we need each other. And it keeps the flow of the argument that we are supposed to love one another. Remember that from the last two weeks? Love one another sincerely from a pure heart. And and the picture of us being built together as a temple means that every last one of you, if you are a Christian, if you're one of these living stones, you matter. I mean, think about your house, right? I mean, most of you don't live in brick houses in where we live, but if if your house was made of bricks, how many bricks would you think could be missing in your wall before you'd notice? That's a problem, right? But see, we, every one of you as a living stone, matters in the building together of this holy temple. We're supposed to find a way to connect to each other without hurting each other. We're supposed to realize that never, never, never as a Christian are you actually alone. And that fits all the other biblical images, right? Because what are other things the Bible talks about the church as? We are a family. We are a flock. We are a body with all its different parts united as one unit. And then Peter takes an even further step and he says that the temple into which you and I are being built, it is a holy priesthood. And if you don't get it, yes, the metaphor just changed, didn't it? We're stones. Okay, that's one metaphor. As stones, we're being built together into a temple for God. That's another metaphor. As that temple, we function as a priesthood. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was supposed to be set apart from other nations to be a nation of priests. 
You can look at Exodus 19, 4 through 6 for that. And that meant that Israel is the nation. Israel was the nation when they existed in the Old Testament era. They were the place you had to go to, the people you had to go through if you wanted to be able to get a personal relationship with God. If you wanted to relate to God, you had to go through Israel. And even inside of Israel, the priestly tribe of Levi, the Levites, they were the ones who performed the religious actions on behalf of the rest of the nation. The Levites did things that the others just had to watch and receive the benefits from sometimes. Levites represented the people before God, and they would speak to the people for God. But... As Christians, God is telling you and me through Peter that we, as a unit, are a holy priesthood. That means that as the people of God, we don't rely on somebody else to go to God for us. We don't ask somebody else to worship on our behalf. We don't wait for somebody else to tell us what God has said. You see, you, if you're a believer, have been given personal access to you by yourself under Jesus approach God in prayer. You, as a believer, have been given by God personal access to the Word of God in Scripture. So you don't have to wait for someone to come and tell you what has God said. You've got it in multiple books in your house. It's on your phone. You, as a believer, on your own, again, under Christ, you as a believer, yourself, worship God. And you don't wait for a religious expert to come and perform the ceremony for you. And as a part of the priesthood of all believers, you and I are supposed to, what does Peter say? We do this so that we can offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now don't think, at all here, that you and I do something to personally atone for our sin or earn forgiveness. That's not the kind of sacrifices we're talking about. But instead, think here of the kind of offerings that the priests would make in the Old Testament just to show devotion and to please God. Grain offerings and drink offerings and free will offerings are examples of things that people would do in the Old Testament where they would offer sacrifices, but the sacrifices were not about forgiveness of sin. They were about pleasing God. They're acts of praise. They're declarations of dependence on God. So then you should ask yourself this question, what might might our spiritual sacrifices to God be? And the answer, short and sweet, is anything that we as the people of God do to honor God in obedience to his word can be a spiritual sacrifice. So anytime you obey the Lord's commands, specifically because you want to glorify God, you offer something to God as part of his household of priests. Anytime you sing God's praise, or read God's word, or pray, or participate in Lord's Supper, or thank God for your meal, you 
in a sense, sacrifice to please him. Anytime you exercise to care for your body so that your body can be a tool for the Lord, you sacrifice. By the way, do you know how exercise can both be an idol or an act of godly worship? Right? Because if I exercise so I look good, that can be idolatrous. But if I exercise so that my body can be a tool, that I can be a steward of what the Lord has given me so I might serve him, I worship. Anytime you share the gospel with somebody, you make an offering to the Lord. When a parent disciplines a child in order to teach that child to obey authority so that they can glorify God in their lives, or when a parent changes a diaper just so they can care for the little ones God has given them, they may indeed be sacrificing to the glory of God. Anytime you do anything with your body for the glory of God, in accord with the word of God, you do what the holy priests of this house are to do. In fact, even when you learn to think differently from the world, you make an offering to God. How do I know? Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 say, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What's the picture here, friends? You and I are supposed to be worshipers of God in every area of life. Now, I don't want to be flippant with that. I, as I was writing this, just to let you in on the process, I was hesitant in some ways to say some of this because if, if we're not careful, you'll get silly with it and flippant with, oh, that's worship. We're not trying to be silly. We are to understand, though, that we are to do everything we do to the glory of God. And there's not a single act that you do that is a righteous act that could not be to the glory of God if you would see and seek the glory of God in it. What, it, what does it say in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God? There's a really great old article on Desiring God where John Piper one of his kids challenged him to say, how can you drink orange juice to the glory of God then? Prove it. He did. <laughs> Think of all the things you could praise God for as you have a glass of orange juice. He goes, I mean, somebody had to, the, the tree had to grow, the sun had to send the energy to the earth so that the tree could grow, the soil had to be fertile, it had to get rain, people had to exist to pick those oranges, they had to be squeezed, it had to be packaged, it had to be refrigerated. God allowed human beings to invent refrigeration and trucks so this could get fresh from Florida or California to where we live. You can glorify God with that. Or you might glorify God by making sure there's enough left for somebody else to have orange juice too. We can do things to the glory of God. We can worship God in any aspect of life. And everything we do to the glory of God, if it's in keeping with the word of God, why do I keep saying that, by the way? Because plenty of people say, I'm trying to glorify God by what I do, and they're doing things that are not in the word of God. 
or that oppose the word of God. I don't mean that. But if you're trying to glorify God, keeping with the word of God, if you're under the grace of Jesus Christ, you can indeed be sacrificing to the Lord in a way that's pleasing. Now, before we move on, ask this question, friends. What is my identity? Who am I? If you're a Christian, your identity is as one of the people of God. So you are a living stone being built by God together with other living stones to stand as a glorious temple for the worship of God. And even greater, what Peter says is, you are a part of the holy priesthood to Jesus. You are not to identify with the labels and man-centered restrictions of this world. Identify yourself as I am one of the priesthood of all believers. Second point. Christians also identify as believers. You'd say that one's easy, Travis. I know. Look at verse 6 and beginning of 7. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. Now, Peter continues. He grabs another stone metaphor from the Old Testament, this time quoting uh, the Septuagint version of Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. You might say Septuagint if you want to pronounce it that way, by the way, or LXX if you want to abbreviate. But, and the citation here, it gives us the thought that we already found in verse 4 that Jesus is a precious chosen living stone from God. And the Word of God tells us that whoever believes in Jesus is not going to be put to shame. And here's the key element of identity. Those who believe have a protection granted to them from God. Those who believe will not be ashamed. So this has to lead us to a few questions. One, what does it mean to believe? And what does it mean that we won't be put to shame? And what does it mean in verse 7 that honor is for those who believe? Now, if I ask you, how many of you believe in Jesus? Many, most of you would say yes, right? Yes. Amen. Amen. Boy, even the young ones got that one, right? <laughs> but you guys know how easily we mess up things, right? Yes. Yes. So, that, so that, that we may not even know what believe means. You ever thought about that? Do you believe? But do you believe believe? So let me give you a definition of what belief is. You tell me if it works. Believing includes a mental assent that changes your actions. Believing includes a mental assent that changes your actions. I think if we get that, it'll help us get this right. Belief includes a mental assent. A person who believes in Jesus has to, with their brain, with their noggin, believe certain things that are true about Jesus, accept things as true about Jesus. And I would say, and again, our young ones can get this, if you want to know what you have to believe about Jesus, think about the three things that he did in his life, his death, and his resurrection. All three of those are the categories you need if you want to believe right about Jesus. So believers believe we accept in our heads the truth that Jesus in his life is the Son of God 
God in the flesh. Jesus came to earth. He was born of a virgin. He grew up and he lived a perfectly sinless life. That's true of Jesus, right? We believe that in our heads. Good. Believers also believe, we accept the fact that Jesus died on a cross as the sacrifice for our sins. We understand that while Jesus was hanging on the cross, God the Father justly punished Jesus as our substitute. Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sins so we could escape that judgment in our own lives. That makes sense? That's his life. That's his death. Believers also accept the truth that on the third day after Jesus died for us, he rose from the grave. Which means Jesus really, literally, actually, physically, with his body, came back to life. He, he, he beat death. Jesus proved that, if you want to know the ultimate proof that Jesus is God who lived a perfect life and who died as a sacrifice to take the wrath of God on our behalf, how do you know that that really happened and it really worked? He got up. Y'all, when we die, we don't get up. Jesus did. And because Jesus did, we will. Jesus proved that every single person who belongs to him is going to live even if we die. Those are the things we have to mentally assent to. But friends, don't you know that people can mentally assent to all of the facts I just said and not be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because believing is more than mental assent. Belief, real belief, changes you. I mean, again, you might believe, is Jesus God? Sure he is. He came to earth, lived a perfect life, died as a sacrifice, and rose from the grave. Someone say, sure, yeah, I believe that. But they could believe every bit of that and not be changed by that belief. And if you want to be a real child of God, your belief must be accompanied to, tied to, leading to, intermeshed with, in an inseparable way, repentance. Belief in Jesus causes action. True belief, soul-saving belief, makes you do things differently. Suppose that a person came to you and said to you, the building is on fire. It's not, just making sure that we know that. But suppose a person came to you and said to you, the building is on fire. What would genuine belief in what that person says lead you to do? No, in an orderly fashion, (laughs) good gosh, in an orderly fashion, stand and depart the building, taking your children with you. (laughs) True? We're trying at least, right? But you know, you know what genuinely believing the building on fire would not lead you to do? Sit still. (laughs) Building's on fire. Yeah, I know. That doesn't work. Belief, true belief, the only way that that belief is really true is if it leads you to stand up and walk out of the building. 
True belief in Jesus is more than knowing facts about Jesus. True belief in Jesus is part of turning away from sin. It leads you to declare to God, God, you're the master, you're the boss, you're the king over my life. True belief leads you to worship and obedience. Now, what about the shame and the honor found at the end of verse 6 and beginning of verse 7? It says believers are not going to be put to shame. That is not saying that the world's not going to try to hurt you or shame you or kill you. You know what it, is, you know what it says? It says that at the end, when it's all said and done, God is going to keep us as His. God is going to restore us from any pain, any hardship, any shame we've ever experienced in His name. God in eternity, will fill us with such joy in His glory that we will never be ashamed of any hardship that we've ever faced in this life. How many of you have a lot of shame, by the way? You're ashamed of who you've been. You're ashamed of the world thinks about you now. You're ashamed of what you haven't accomplished. How about the fact that at the return of Jesus and in glory you will hold no more shame ever. That's good news. Similarly, the honor is for those who, those who believe. What's that honor? That's the honor we gain in being vindicated as the true children of God. Even though the world rejects us, even though the world rejects Jesus, the world is going to see at the very end that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be and that we have been made children of God through him. We are going to be called faithful servants of God and the rebelling world will not. Think about, again, how comforting must this have been to believers who Peter says felt like exiles. They were outcasts. They were foreigners in a fallen world. No matter how much the world turns on us, God's not going to lose us. If we're believers in Jesus, we have honor and not shame coming to us for eternity. And that's why the label that we need to put on is not a label of our brokenness in this world. The label we put on, the identity we put on is believer. That's the one you've got to wear. Third point. Beware identifying as a non-believer. Beware identifying as a non-believer. Verses 7 and 8. Excuse me. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now here's the opposite side of the picture, isn't it? Believers in Jesus have hope and vindication and reward ahead of them, but there are so many people who will never turn away from their sins and never surrender their lives in faith to Jesus. And the Bible, the Bible is leading us to ask, what about them? What is their identity? And Peter goes back to the stone metaphors again, right? 
He ties together Psalm 118, 22 and following. He ties together Isaiah 8, 14 and 28, 16. And he builds a very similar picture to the picture that Jesus built at the end of the parable in Matthew 21, 42 and 44. And what we see is the precious stone, the Lord Jesus, is the foundation of his holy church. And whoever belongs to Jesus has salvation and forgiveness and honor in Jesus. But for everyone who rejects Jesus, God says that that very same stone that is our hope brings destruction for those who oppose God. And the image is not hard. Jesus Metaphorically, the living stone. Is a stone a good thing or a bad thing? Really depends what happens to you from it, doesn't it? See, Jesus as the stone is the stone that builds you and me into a glorious temple for joy in Christ. A place of joy, a place of great peace. But you know what else a stone can be? A stone can be something you trip over and fall. And there are people for whom Jesus is a, st- as a stone over which they will stumble and fall and they will be broken. Jesus can be your greatest source of security or he can be your greatest source of agony. You will either have Jesus as your savior or you will face Jesus as your judge. There is no other option. Friend or enemy, no in-between. Savior or judge, no in-between. Notice in verse 8, the issue is one of obedience to the Word. Isn't that interesting? That's very similar to the two expressions of obedience to the truth that we see in chapter 1. Who is saved by Jesus? The one who believes in Jesus enough so that they will surrender to Jesus is the one who is saved. Who is judged by Jesus? That's the person who will not obey the word of God so that they won't believe in Jesus or bow to Jesus as their Lord. And do notice, dear friends, God is not in the least bit surprised about who opposes him. Verse 8 says, Those who disobey him... Disobey his word, what? As they were destined to do. Now, that doesn't mean that God is forcing anybody away from him who wants him. No biblical doctrine ever teaches about somebody who wants the grace of God, who wants to know God, and God says, no, I won't have it for you. There's not a biblical doctrine for that. But what it does mean, for sure, is this. God never failed to save someone he tried to save. We've got to know that's true about our God. God is sovereign, in control. God is on his throne, eternally God. And the warning here is for everybody who doesn't know Jesus. Do not let yourself continue to be identified as a non-believer. If you've got breath in your lungs, let me ask this question. How many of you have breath in your lungs? Okay, good. A few of you do. Some of you are thinking that through right now. That troubles me. If your heart is beating, how many of you is your heart beating? Yeah, Yeah, okay, good, good. Again, better still. 
If your heart is beating, you have upon your life the command of God, the order of God. God says, turn from your sins and believe in Jesus before you die. That's the command of God for all human beings. If you turn from Jesus and give over your life to Jesus, God says you will find mercy and forgiveness. If you won't bow to Jesus now, you will fall under his judgment. Turn to Jesus and believe before it's too late. Fourth point. Christians identify as a holy nation. Look at verse 9, the beginning. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession. Remember, this book is a letter written by Peter to people who were scattered all throughout the land that we now call Turkey. And Peter called them exiles. These were Gentile believers who didn't fit in anymore in their culture. Now, again, they may or may not have ever fit in before. They surely don't fit in now. They feel like outcasts in their land because of their faith. By the way, doesn't that sound more and more like the way Christians feel in our land today? Y'all, we can no longer assume that in our nation we're going to be welcomed into society. Universities are actively shutting down the presentation of ideas that disagree with their new morality. Their campuses that will not let anybody come in and speak anything other than what they've already agreed with. States are aggressively attempting to force all people to applaud choices that Christians simply must oppose. Hollywood does everything it can to present Christians as backward, foolish, outdated, dangerous, bigoted, on the wrong side of history, right? You guys have heard on the wrong side of history, haven't you? You realize also that everyone who lived near Noah thought he was on the wrong side of history too? But we certainly know, or we certainly will know, friends, what these believers in Peter's day felt. So how great is it then to know that God chose to have Peter tell these scattered exiles, these aliens in a world not their home, he said, look, you guys are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people. You are a people for God's possession. How great is it that God gives us a brand new, wonderful, eternal identity? God calls these people you and me as well, he says we are a chosen race. Think about that. What is your race? Your race, dear Christian friend, if you're a Christian, you know what your race is? Chosen. That's what your race is. I don't know if that's on the census form or not. But that's what it is. Don't let yourself be identified simply with some geopolitical state or the melanin count in your skin or your linguistic group that you happen to be falling into. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not telling you don't be who you are. I'm not telling you reject your culture. That's not my point. But look, know this. God has said that every single person who is his I don't care what color you are. I don't care what language you speak. You are now called one race, 
chosen race, the people God chose for himself for salvation. And your identity is I am one of the people and family of God. That's who you are. We are a royal priesthood. We already touched this a little bit. All believers have access to the Lord. No believers have to wait for someone else to worship on their behalf. We are a nation full of priests. Isn't that cool? It is really cool. And by the way, I've got to say this. I've got to say this. This is where it's really funny when someone says, Pastor, I need you to pray about this as if they can't. My prayers are not better than yours. Because I'm not, you know what I am? I'm one of you. That's why, you know, in the old days, in a lot of churches, the pastor would sit up here and look at you guys. I sit down there because I'm one of you guys. Think that stuff through. We're also a holy nation. God has set us apart from the world to be pure and perfect like him. That's what the holy is about, right? You and I are supposed to be the people group who finds our identity primarily in the fact that we belong to Jesus and we live to the glory of Jesus and that's going to make us stand out from the rest of the world and that's going to give us an identity that the world cannot have unless they first surrender to Jesus and become part of his people. Our nation is not American or Chinese, or Mexican, or Russian, or anything else. Again, that might be your culture, that might be the kind of food you like, it might be the language you speak, I get it, but we transcend any form of earthly nationalism because we are the nation of the people of God. And we are a people for God's own possession. Again, God looks at his people. God looks at the temple that he's building out of living stones. And God says we are his special sacred possession. You and I are treasured by God. That is not, by the way, because we bring something special to the table to benefit God. God treasures us. You know why? You know why? Because he chose to. That's it. That's it. God chose to treasure his people before creation. Before he made the world. Before Adam sinned. God knew, I'm going to rescue a people for myself. God treasures us because of the price his son paid to rescue us. God treasures us because he chose to make us into the gift he would give his son to display his glory. God treasures us because he has chosen to display the riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know, it's funny, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel had a status. They were God's people. They were a holy nation. They were a nation of priests. They were the apple of God's eye. But the relationship between God and Israel was always contingent on Israel's obedience to the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. When Israel obeyed, they would be blessed. If, it, if and when Israel rejected the Lord, they would be a display of the judgment of God. And Israel took pride at times of being the nation that was the people of God. You want to know God? You've got to come through us. But you know what? Now the people of God are not related to any physical nation. And now we're not related to any physical genealogy per se. The people of God consist of all people genuinely saved by Jesus. 
We are the true people of God. We are now a nation. We are now a holy people because God brought us into his kingdom by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Gentiles, believing Jews, anybody who comes to Jesus Christ by grace through faith is grafted into one living people, one living nation. The scattered exiles in, the, in this world, the people that think that because of their faith they don't get to have a people anymore, they are found in the people of God as God's holy nation. So Christians identify as a holy nation. And as a nation... We exist to proclaim the excellencies of God. He called us out of darkness into light. He called us out of death into life. He called us out of sin into holiness. He called us out of hell into heaven. And we exist to declare those things, which that, of course, by the way, is point number five. Christians identify as proclaimers of mercy. Christians identify as proclaimers of mercy. This is what we are. Nine says, we are all of the stuff that I just said, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. So what excellencies do we proclaim from verse nine? We proclaim that one time, you know what? We used to not be a people. Now we are a people. Once we were destined for hell, now we're destined for heaven. Once we were under the wrath of God, now we're under his mercy and his love. Christians, do you love the gospel? Do you love salvation? This is better than going to hell, right? So you like it, right? This is good. Do you love the grace of Jesus? If you do, then make your identity center around being a mercy proclaimer. You know, Christians, we have a word for the world around us. And it starts with the fact that God is holy and perfect and righteous. And we are not, and we've never been good on our own. But we've been given the mercy and the grace of God. We are not and have never been pure on our own. We are not and have never been better than other people on our own. But God chose for God's glory to save for himself a people, to give us life. And if we have that life, we tell the world around us, you guys can have this life too. You can be saved too. You can have mercy too. Every single person who will turn from their sin and trust in Jesus will be saved. Every single person who will repent and believe will be forgiven. And we declare that that mercy is for every single person who will really come to Jesus and we urge them to come to Jesus before it's too late. So Christians, we must identify as proclaimers of mercy. Okay, who are you? What is your identity? I would urge you, do not create divisions in the body of Christ by adopting identities that are not present in Scripture. Instead, identify yourself as God identifies His people. If you're a Christian, you've got an identity. It's called Christian. You're not a something Christian. You're a Christian. Christians identify as a holy priesthood. 
Christians identify as believers. Christians identify as a holy nation. Christians identify as mercy proclaimers, proclaimers of mercy. And as a proclaimer of mercy, I warn all who hear my voice, beware identifying as a non-believer. There is mercy for everyone who comes to Jesus. There is judgment for everyone who refuses to come to God as he commands. So turn to God and become part of the people of God. Let's bow and let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for our identity in Christ. We are not worthy. We are not good on our own. We don't live up to what we should. And here we are in this country full of people who are who's a people full of peoples. And we get to be one people. No matter what we look like, no matter what language we used to speak, no matter where we came from, we are your people if we have been made your children in Christ. God, build this church into just one expression of those living stones united to be a temple for your worship. Make our lives glorify you. And God, if anybody here is fighting you, if anybody here is wrestling with you or just not believing, God, I pray that you have mercy on their souls. Let them know they can come. And when they come, we'll know you did it. But let them know you welcome all who come in faith in Christ. God, be glorified. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.